Hello, Dan. How's, every, how's everything going? <clears throat> good. How are you going? Good. I'm going good. Can we go live with this thing? Oh, is this it? Yeah, this is it. This is the show? This is the show. This is how we, how we start the show, usually. <clears throat> I've never listened to the show, so I don't, I'm not really familiar with how it goes. No, no. We start off, I call... I call him. I say, "Hey, how's it going?" Way, way up there in San Francisco, and we do we do a show. You guys just do a show, starting with that. Yeah, that's how we usually start, and we have this thing now where we say we say good. Well, you know, usually it's the morning when we are recording the show, and I'll or say, do you, not con- "Do you not consider this the morning?" <laughs> this, is the, this is in the center of the morning. Are you? What are you talking about? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess this is would be for you squarely in in the morning. <laughs> yeah, this is dead. Center morning, <laughs> but I guess you live you live in Austin, right? So, That's right. Uh, so mornings kind of mornings come and go a lot faster. There. Yeah, yeah. No, they are uh, they're done. I think we're most of the way done with the morning here when you're mm-hmm. when you're kicking it off there. Yeah, but also I like to think of Austin as a place that's always in mid afternoon because of the sun, because of how just, warm. <laughs> just feels like from about nine thirty a.m. until. What eleven thirty at night? It just feels like mid afternoon. <laughs> yeah, and we have that. We have mm-hmm. that here. And you're in yeah. Seattle, right? Which is uh, you're just back mm-hmm. from Africa, though. Which is I thought that was a joke at first. I didn't know that you had a whole thing going on over there. <laughs> it does seem like a joke I would pull. What it, what, what it, happened? It, How did what were you doing seemed, over there? It seemed like a joke that I was pulling the entire time <laughs> on all of the people I was there ostensibly <laughs> to entertain. What were you doing there? What was entertaining the troops? entertaining the troops that's so cool is that real it was actually real (laughs) there are there is a small but growing american military uh contingent in africa africa is obviously enormous right and so uh even a even a, a large base would seem small but some of these bases were very small like what's give me an idea because i don't know what what I should expect going over there. They were, well, these, these, the bases that I visited were, uh, some of them were just a small collection of tents. Right. Uh, arranged in a circle, uh, which is, which is, I think, uh, by army standards or by military standards, the small, the smallest base. Yeah. Was it like mash? There was a mash component. Okay. Uh, and it was a, there was a mash component. And what, what that <laughs> meant was there were like four doctors and they were like they were throwing playing cards into a hat across the room. <laughs> right. And I was like, you guys, do you ever see any action here? And they're like, not yet. Wow. So, hmm, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. But so what did you, was it like, were you, when you say performing, was it um, mm-hmm. music? Was it a skit that you set up to do? Or <laughs> what was it? Like, like I say, it seemed like a skit to them. Yeah. A skit called uh, How to Andy Kaufman an Entire uh, Military Base. <laughs> yeah. With an implausible uh, show. No, it was uh, David Reese, who is famous for his uh, pencil sharpening book, mm-hmm. How to Sharpen Pencils by David Reese. And uh, he also has a show on the uh, the National Geographic channel. Mm-hmm. And he and Jonathan Colton, uh, a renowned Brooklyn singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. and, and I put on a kind of three-man variety show. Which we called the Three Johns, um, even though Jonathan insists that his name Jonathan is a separate name from John. Right. Well, he doesn't ever abbreviate it. No, he he is he is adamant uh, at not being called John. And then, of course, David is not named John. 
Uh, but we called it the Three Johns just because it was my idea, and so I called it the Three Johns. Nice. Uh, and uh, we we played uh, we played a couple of shows uh, a night for very, you know different troops on different shifts. Mm-hmm. We we played at a U.S. embassy there. Wow. Uh, in you're in with the embassies and and being an ambassador and things like that. That's a that's a, your new track. I really want. I, there's a part of me that really wants it, that wants that. But yeah. then, um, I feel like I'm. I feel like I've been operating for a long time on a on a on a child's notion <laughs> of what the foreign service is. <laughs> how how so? <laughs> Just because a lot of those ideas I formed. <laughs> Let me explain. Yes. Let me explain something. This is difficult. This is difficult for me to say because I'm I'm on record a lot as being someone who doesn't understand fanboy culture. Ah, uh-huh. all right. It's not that I don't understand it. I understand it as an observer. Right. But in fact, on this trip, I had to reflect on on the fact that I was a fanboy. I was just a Cold War fanboy. <laughs> So you're talking about the American Russian Cold War. Right. Okay. Throughout the throughout the 70s when all my when I was a child and all my peers were collecting Batman comics and trying to understand what Silver Surfer was <laughs> and we still um, do that. And you know and and Star Wars and and all the thing and, and oh and sports cards, baseball cards and people talking about Steve Largent and football statistics. I didn't, I, as a kid, I didn't participate in any of that, but I could tell you every airplane in the sky, every kind of military base around the world, every sort of troop movement, all the geopolitics <laughs> around the Cold War and the history of the Cold War, right? right. I, I, I knew it because I also knew the history of World War II, and I was, and I had the exact same relationship to that stuff as other kids did to comic books and sports. Like, so I knew everything and was, and had this like exhaustive, completest sense of, of the world order. And the, the problem was that as I got older, kind of like a lot of people talk about with comic books, I, I didn't have any friends that shared my excitement. Oh, right. Right, so I'm I'm in high school and I'm like, wow, that MiG twenty five bat really has a lot of capabilities, <laughs> and it was not, it did not make me popular. Right. Yeah, like shouting that out <laughs> in class would be right. <laughs> and so I learned to I learned to put it away in this in my secret place. Right, and along with that went all this kind of state department fanboy stuff i could tell you every single person in the reagan administration every down to like the deputy undersecretary of state like i knew the whole order of it and what all what all the people did and so then uh, somewhere in early adulthood i stopped adding new information to my fanboy catalog right I didn't make, I didn't make the transition. I'm not like, uh, like a lot of guys that were into sports as kids, they, they continued to be into sports as adults Yeah, because they had a bunch of friends that also would sit around and talk sport, sports statistics. Right. Right. And so you're rewarded for the, 
the the knowledge that you've built and staying involved in it and keeping keeping your your interest there you're rewarded because then and then when you go into the workforce you're in the elevator. A couple of their dudes are in there. Like, oh, you see the game list? Yeah, I saw the game list. Hey, the game, and what about that? And that guy throws the ball just like that other guy from 25 years ago. And everybody right. goes, high five. See, I'll, just hearing you say that, I'm starting to actually like get interested in the in the conversation of the, mm-hmm. the sports conversation. It's, progr- <laughs> yeah, it's been programmed is- into me. Like, wait, which <laughs> were you talking about the, throwing like Dan Marino? That's what you meant, right? And like, <laughs> right. Which guy? No. Wait a minute. What about the what about the seven the Steelers in the 70s? Wow. <laughs> and uh and you know and, and a guy like Patton oswald right he goes on uh, the internet now and he says in 1992 i was going to the movie theater and watching seven movies in a row and and he's he is continuing his child childhood obsession with popular culture and adding new material to it all the time so that now he's a 48 year old guy or whatever and he can tell you you know, he can tell you the second assistant camera person on Look Who's Talking To. Mm-hmm. And we celebrate him for his exhaustive knowledge. But unfortunately for me, when I was 22, I was living in Grunge Rock, Seattle Town. Oh, right. Oh, you were in the center, the epicenter of that. I was. I was. And I can't, I cannot, I cannot accentuate this enough. There was no place here. <laughs> Uh, for me to go and talk about Casper Weinberger with anybody. (laughs) You were limited. Your options were limited. (laughs) Nobody cared. Yeah. And not only nobody cared, but just like, like not even eye rolling, but just dead eyed shark face. If I started to say like, well, interesting that you would bring that up, but actually the Warsaw pact was, and people would just be like dead eyed shark face. Right. So I stopped adding, I stopped like exhaustively adding new material. Well, so I'm out, uh, I'm out on this tour and I'm living on these bases and every night I'm staying up late talking to these Lieutenant colonels and I'm got in, at one point we got invited to the chief's mess and we're talking to all these Navy master chiefs and, and it was revealed that, that I had a tremendous knowledge of the U S military and, and all of its equipment and all of its theories and all of its strategy, except my knowledge was obsolete circa 1993. (laughs) That was, and did they, were they able to like put this together and say, Oh, you know what? Like you're talking about dated stuff. You're talking about stuff that's, that's no longer current and up to date, but what had changed? I thought the military was like a, a bastion of tradition that doesn't ever change. It just stays. I mean, they get new equipment a little, but like, it's essentially well, the same, right? That's what I that's what I thought. Yeah. So so I'm so I show up and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm talking to some guys who are sitting behind uh, some sandbags with a machine gun, and I'm like, well, is that the uh, you know the M60? And the kids, the 19 year old <laughs> kids who graduated from high school in 2013, right, look up at me as, and I'm just saying nonsense words, right. And then the master sergeant who's 38. Uh-huh kind of leans over and says, uh, sir, the M60 was phased out in 1993. That's the, you know, that's the M42. The, it's the replacement of the M60. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, f- in 1993? Really? Wow. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, and so we walked down the, the, the flight line or whatever, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's interesting, uh, <clears throat> you know, interesting use of the, the uh, 
A10 platform. And they're like, well, sir, the A10 is really something that we're trying to phase out now. And, you know, and then just every step of the way, some command master sergeant was patiently explaining to me that what I was trying, you know, like the stuff that I was confidently espousing was like, um, actually sort of 20 to 25 years in their past. Was there no respect though, for the fact that you did have what, what apparently had become a historic knowledge of this stuff? Mm. No. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the second confusing thing for me, which was that I wasn't, you know, like a lot of people our age, Dan. Yes. I have not been, I've been somewhat conscious of aging, (laughs) but, but also somewhat unconscious of aging. Right. And I was not aware that basically I had effectively not only aged out of being able to join the military, <laughs> but was fast approaching the age where I would be forcibly retired from the military. Oh, right. Yeah. So looking around, the only people who are getting my jokes, my, my let me say, military jokes, yeah. jokes that were, that were, you know, based in this, like, that were steeped in this knowledge uh, were these guys that were basically lieutenant colonels or higher or master sergeants or higher guys in their forties who had already reached 20 years in the service and were, were looking, you know, were were basically shopping for a ranch somewhere <laughs> uh, because they could, because their, their date of retirement was imminent. And I was like, wait a minute. I still think of myself as being a guy like down on the ground, like, like, you know, one of the guys. Yeah. One of the troops. Yeah. And I was, I mean, like I say, these guys, most of them had graduated from high school in the 2013. I can't even, I can't even say that without, without wondering uh, where the time went. So suffice to say that when I went to the embassy in Niger and met the ambassador who was probably my age or a little bit older. Right. And, uh, and sort of went through the routines, I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is just an office job in a place where uh, it's hard to get Hershey bars. <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't want an office job. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it's a, I, like, I will work my whole life to not have an office job. The fact that, it, that the office job is a deputy ambassador to Niger doesn't change the fact that it's, A, an office job. Right. And B, hard to get Hershey bars. <laughs> So it the, let me in in summary the bloom is a little bit off the rose for me uh-huh. <laughs> about all of this stuff I'm I'm trying to transition it was a, it was an eye opener that I realized I was a fanboy for something yeah and that that fanboy uh that fanboy knowledge and like I had never really found an expression I'd never I'd never had a way in my life to to like just be that fan Particularly since I'm a, I'm a liberal and I live in a in a very liberal culture. Yeah, and so f- being a fan of the military is something that just isn't one of. It's not like one of the uh, fan options. Well, it, and it, what's interesting is that a lot of people, like I remember guys in high school that were interested in this stuff. Usually, they went and joined the armed mm. forces. You know, like I. I, I, I <laughs> I knew a guy who was in, you know, two guys, one went in Coast Guard, one went into the Navy, one went into the Air Force. And these are like the three guys I remember from high school, like, oh, right, they're into this stuff. 
and they mm-hmm. they joined and you know they they had some of them had long careers in there yeah yeah and i have some friends from high school that joined the military and have and are at the close of their long careers yeah but the problem was that as i uh, when i entered high school i also was at the dawn of my budding political consciousness which was on a separate track from my uh, from my strategic air command, mm-hmm. uh, like the the lists that I used to make in notebook in notebooks of all the distant early warning strategic air command radar sites. It's like you were. I mean, you were really into this. Like this was serious. Oh yeah, I had books and books and books. And if if, if you know if a plane was flying in the sky and it was just a tiny dot off on the horizon, you could point to it and say, "What's that?" And I would, you know, I would know from its silhouette exactly what kind of plane it was and and i could you know i i used to read jane's um like military hardware guides and i mean it was crazy but but simultaneous to that i was becoming a kind of leftist like i was developing a leftist radical political conscious Mm -hmm. consciousness and so somewhere in the middle of high school and all of this was happening alone there wasn't i wasn't sharing either thing with my friends because we, you know, my high school friends and I were just talking about skiing, right, right, and beer. But <clears throat> somewhere along the line, I recognized that there was an, a, an incongruity between being a, a radical and a, and a military fetishist. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a while that I could be that there was some kind of way I could be a revolutionary. But I realized that that was idiotic. I didn't, there was no place in American political life for, oh, right. a, revol, for a revolutionary, right? That's yeah. like not a, I am not a person who believes that the tree of liberty is watered by the blood of patriots. Right. Right. And so <laughs> I believe that the tree of liberty is, is watered by a democratic voting. Right. Uh, so, so I was like, uh, you know, some, somewhere around there, 14, 15, I was like, maybe I'll be a revolutionary. I was like, uh, come on, that's not, that's lame. So right when I was at military age and probably should have joined the military, it would have, it would have built, it would have instilled a kind of character in me that I still feel is lacking. Right. Instead, I decided that I was just going to go, um, I was going to go the other way and I was going to grow my hair out and smoke pot and drive around the country and <clears throat> be a, like a hippie moocher pain in the ass. See, because you would see a movie like Stripes, and that would make you, it made me sort of like think the military might be an option for me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then there was all this, uh, like, the, the, you know, then, but then you com- contrast that to uh, these actual, like, war movies, like we had to watch Patton, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a class. And you just, everyone's, everyone's dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it all, it just seemed, it, that part of it seemed very unappealing. And I remember then in high school, well past the point where I was really considering even remotely doing anything like that. I remember my friends who were like any, they were like, they started their own sort of like, like training. They were physically (laughs) training themselves so that they could go to enlist and that they would be accepted and they'd make it, you know, through boot camp. They had like a, like, Oh, I need to do this many pushups and this many sit-ups and I'd be able to run this far. And and like, (laughs) that just was very off putting to me at the time. You know, it got in my in, in the way of the D and D, and you know that kind that kind of thing. Oh, you said a mouthful. <laughs> That's uh, a lot that of work. Was, that was a lot of work, really off putting, and also even stripes. 
which seemed pretty fun. Um, well, they had the cool van or, you know, the, the, the <laughs> Winnebago thing. Yeah, yeah, GMC RV. CRV, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but but even that movie, uh, a close reading of it, uh, you realize <laughs> yes. that 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 uh, that that you are going to be bossed around by John Larroquette. Yes. Yeah. Which but, is not a thing I was prepared to have happen. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and like MASH, going back to MASH, MASH seemed really good. Until that the one special episode with you know with the bus and and the baby and all of that, then it gets to war. Yeah, that seemed bad. Then then it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah, well, and also the the trick to mash is that those guys were doctors, so they could be sassy. Yeah, because they were needed. But but you know if you if you're if you're a fan of mash and watching that and trying to trying to find put yourself in the mash uh story right you know when i put myself in the mash story i was going to be the guy the guy <laughs> with the with the spoon in the chow line slopping corn onto uh onto frank burns's tray yeah cuz i wasn't a doctor right still important though still an important you know what that's right support it's mm-hmm. a long tail but so being in the, being in this military context for a couple of weeks in Africa, I was really astonished uh, to see, to 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 for the first time in my adult life, really be completely immersed in this culture, in a way that dispelled some long held beliefs and also gave me a new picture of how the military actually operates. It feels like it's changed. a. Not, it's not just that the machine guns are different. It's changed a lot since the uh, 1990s. And the old guys that are my age are rotating out and mm-hmm. they're being replaced by, you know, by a kind of touchy feelier mentality. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was just, it was, I'm still parsing it all. How it's, long were you there for? Well, we were we were all together over there ten days. All right, let's do our first sponsor today. It's Casper. They are an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. We have one here. They sent us one in the office because they wanted us to have the whole experience of uh, ordering one of these things. Because like it's weird to order a mattress, right? Like that seems weird. How do you try it out? How do you test it? How do you know if you're going to like it unless you get to lay on it? Well, they send you one of these things and you get to try it out. They let you actually try it out for a hundred days, a hundred days. You get to sit there with this mattress and try it out. I think that's because they're completely confident that you're going to love it. And we love the one that, uh, that they sent us. I'm probably going to wind up taking this thing home. It's so awesome. Uh, they're one of a kind. These new hybrid mattresses, they combine premium latex foam with memory foam. They've combined these two technologies and they come together for a much, much better sleep. Uh, normally, you know, you're going to pay thousands for a mattress like this, but Casper mattresses cost between 500 bucks for a twin size, a 750 for a full and 850 for a queen. You want to go king size, 950 bucks. And these things feel amazing. They're just right. They're made in America. And again, you get that 100 days to try it out. So if you would like to try one of these, I'm going to give you $50 toward any mattress that you purchase. You go to casper.com slash back to work, spelled out like that, casper 
com slash back to work and use the code comics all one word there it's just one word comics and uh, you will get 50 bucks off i suggest you try one of these things out we love ours you will love yours too i bet so go try it out casper.com slash back to work code is comics you know in my life as an entertainment business person i kind of chart my progress in in show business by the quality of the hotel room that I am allotted right. when I go, or that I allot myself when I go places. You know, the, the very earliest rock and roll tours, I mean, the first rock and roll tour we did, I remember the sun going down at one point and I pulled over to the side of the road at a rest area and put the, you know, turned the car off and said to, the, to my bandmates, well, let's go unroll our sleeping bags on these picnic tables. Right. And try and get some shut-eye. And my bandmates were like, what? Aren't we going to get a hotel? And I was like, who can afford a hotel? We're, you know, we're making $50 a show. Uh, they convinced me that I needed to get us a hotel. <laughs> right. And that was when I realized that when you're, when you're a starting rock band, you're basically losing money. But I got us one hotel room for the four of us. Right. right. And it was two, person, two people to a bed in a double room. It's cozy. And then... It was very cozy. And then I remember there was, the, there was that moment on tour when I was like, you know what, you know what, guys? We're getting two rooms tonight, and everybody's getting their own bed. And that felt like a real graduation. And then it was much later when it was like, you know what? Everybody's getting their own room tonight. Everybody gets their own room. Mm. What do you think about that? We have arrived. We are making money in music. And so right, you were at the risk of, lo- of losing money if you did that early on because you could barely what you were getting paid wasn't even enough to get no, the rooms. You would be losing money by going out and perform- performing. What we were getting paid wasn't enough to pay for gas to get to the next show. Man. Everything else, all ex- other expenses were were in the uh, in the hole. So so when I arrived at, at this tour and I was like, you know, we're, we are U S we're the USO show, right? We're coming to your yeah. base. We're like the big American stars that you've never heard of that are coming to entertain <laughs> you with our uh, inscrutable comedy music. And they were like, welcome to the base. The base is like nine tents arranged around a privy. And here's your tent. And we walked into the tent and it was like, here are some bunk beds that have mattresses on them dating from the Korean War. Wow. And we were like, oh, right. There is no, there is no luxurious accommodation on this base. Yeah. Did you or, at any moment, did it ever, were you ever like, oh, man, maybe I shouldn't have done this? Or were you like, that's cool. I'm ready to roll with this. Well, it was... It was, uh, it was, it was, it was neither. It was more like, huh, this is uncool. But anyway, I'm ready to roll with this. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because, you know, they're air conditioning these tents and, uh, that, uh, air conditioning generates that kind of moldy air conditioning smell. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you're air conditioning a canvas tent, it just never, the mold never goes away. Mm. And I'm, you know, allergic to mold and I'm sitting there lying on this bed and I'm like, okay, all right. Okay. Allergic to mold here. We, you know, this is not the time to start having a, um, 
to start having an allergy attack and need your freaking inhaler. You're like, you're on a military base in Africa doing some shows and supporting the troops. Do not turn into Millhouse now. Uh, and how many so, people were, were in the tent? The chat room is asking how many people were in, in the tent with you. <laughs> there was just, it was a, it was a fairly large tent, but it was just the three of us and our, and there was an army captain who kind of shepherded us. Along. A handler. A handler. Right. Yeah. So the four of us were in this tent that was designed probably for 30 troops. Oh, so this is a big, so it's not like a camping tent. This is a big, a big tent. It's a, it's a big tent. It's yeah. a, it's a, just like our show was kind of a big tent show. Right. This was a big tent that was designed for, <laughs> designed to put like a, you know, a, a bunch of a troops and they had allotted it to us. And then I realized over time, oh, this is the deluxe accommodation. This is where the VIPs stay when they come to the base because right. presumably the other tents smell even worse like feet. <laughs> oh, God. You know, like this is the military, right? right? And yeah. This is, dis- this is dispelling some because we have this, we have this, this, this simultaneous narrative going on that they have ten thousand dollar toilet seats on their airplanes. Uh, and yeah. Even even that narrative is obsolete from nineteen ninety two, right? But somehow there's all this money that's being skimmed off of military contracts, and we think of the whole thing as this pork barrel uh, money cesspool, right? But that's not how the that's not how the troops are living at all. They are like uh living in in dramatically reduced circumstances and so were we and then and we were just like right on let's um <laughs> let's be happy about it yeah and uh and of course you know when you realize that the that the colonel is also is the, the only difference between where you're staying and where the colonel is staying is that someone put a piece of plywood between the colonel's bed and and the major's bed <laughs> yeah Literally, like they put that, that's how they delineate their special rooms is somebody throw, it's the same tent. They just throw some plywood up. So is this, I mean, as far as being stationed there, is this the kind of thing that like this is, would you choose to be stationed there? Is this a a punishment of some kind to be stationed? You know what I'm saying? Like, or or are people picking this because they really want to see Africa or like, what's the, how do those guys get there? Did you get any of that info from them? Yeah, it's very interesting of the way deployments work, right? If you're in the military, you have your home base, right? And your home base can be Camp Pendleton in California, or it can be uh, Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Yeah. So your home, your home base. Sometimes your home base is actually an overseas posting, okay? Which is pretty, which I think is pretty fun for people. Right, you can have a home. Your home base is in Okinawa or something like that, yeah. and that's where that's where you live. I think some of those your family can come live with you, and then a deployment is a thing where you leave your home base and you go spend six months at some outpost, and your deployment is. I don't think that you get to choose it. Yeah, I think that when the air force or the Navy decides that they need somebody someplace, they just, you have, you, you're available. We're sending you. Well, this was what was very interesting to me to learn that, that, that the military does not value very much. Um, the, the specific talents or specific memory or experience of any one person. So if somebody goes for six months to, 
to a, a military base somewhere mm-hmm. and they meet all the tribal leaders and they they learn the names of everybody at the at the embassy and they figure out how to keep oil and gas flowing to their tanks mm-hmm. and all you know they figure out all the stuff at the end of that 6 months i, I would say that person has a has an intellectual uh, like a knowledge base that is, that is tremendously valuable. Right. Like they've built a value in, in, in their role there. Right. Like at a company, but, if you're the only one that, you know, knows how to use Photoshop, they have to keep you around. Precisely. Yeah. But in the military, they actively work against that mentality. And their mentality is every one of those jobs, every person of a certain rank with a certain specialty in the, armed forces is equally capable of doing that job. And when this person's six month deployment is up, they have two days to explain everything they know to the guy that's coming in to replace them. And then it's that person's job to do that. And that person picks up where the last person left off and like commences doing the job uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. And that was astonishing to me because because it's one thing to be making a pot of corn, right? But it's another thing to be doing one of these jobs where you're interacting with locals, you're you're developing a strategic concept of of what you're doing and and why you're there. And kind of amazingly, the military keeps this this rotational um, the 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 rotation is preeminent that. Each job is is fillable by the next candidate, mm-hmm. and that's how they. I mean, in, in a way, it keeps it keeps anybody from being like Colonel Kurtz. Like nobody ever amasses so much power that they're indispensable. Um, and it keeps the kind of the what ends up being important is the the army or the air force. It's not right. right. It's not Colonel So and So from the air force. It's just here's the air force and you're dealing with us. And it is a, it's a kind of, it is the institution that's it. That is not just preeminent, but like predominant. Yes. But that's how they keep going though, because they're behind it, behind all of this in the military, right? Is that underlying perhaps hidden notion that all of these people are and and maybe have to be relatively indispensable. I mean, dispensable, not indispensable, right. dispensable in that they could die out there. So if there's mm-hmm. one person that's like a keystone person and that person is blown up, we're we're in real trouble. We have to be able to keep them keep them going through. And like big companies are kind of like that too, right? Like <laughs> you've managed to avoid that, but I, I it's. That's the only frame of reference I have for it is just when you get your first job at a company, you get that feeling like <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to replace me. Like I've got it made here. I know what I'm doing here. And then something happens or like you get the idea that like, oh, I'm going to tell them I need a raise and I'll quit if I don't. And then they're like, yeah, we'll go ahead and quit. Then. <laughs> like, wait a, <laughs> minute, wait a minute. That was I didn't really mean I was going to quit. Like, I just wanted some more money, but they will. And companies function just fine without you. Even small companies, they keep going. And the military has to do that, right? And that's, but how do the how do you feel like the people who who are there in the in the towns or the villages feel when every six months or year or whatever, like the person they've been building this relationship with is like, oh, I'm you know I leave in two weeks and uh, 
Here's the new guy. Here's a new guy. Like, do they care or are they just there? They have to get used to it. It's so hard to tell. And, 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 you know, the, the, um, this kind of replaceable assembly line mentality that is in the military and Mm -hmm. in the corporate world that you're describing is just one possible way we can do business. And it's the way that we've determined we feel is the, is, is efficient or is the most, um, it's definitely the most sort of mechanical, uh, idea of like what, what individual humans Mm -hmm. have to offer. Right. It does not, I mean, individuality has been ground out of the armed forces for a variety of reasons and, and why corporations emulate that. I have no idea Yeah, because people are not, uh, are not, uh, like interchangeable and people that have amazing skills or even different skills, um, you know, aren't just like, Oh, sorry, click. But, but what's, what's crazy about both the military and the, and the corporate mentality is that we, we keep people in this, like you are replaceable, you are replaceable, you are replaceable all the way up the chain. And the people that are successful at navigating the culture keep getting promoted. And we keep instilling in them this idea that like, You've developed these skills. Now you are now we're taking you out and we're putting you in this other thing where those skills only tangentially apply. And you're going to do this new job. And then when you're done with that, we're going to put you over here. And there's and we do no we make no effort to um to connect conceptually mm-hmm. for any of these people or for the jobs themselves or at any of the sites. And then at a certain point when a person in the military is reaches the level of Colonel yeah, or a person in a corporate uh, scenario reaches the level of manager, all of a sudden we expect them to be strategic thinkers and we expect, and then, then we turn to them and say, what's the big plan? And what we've done from the time that they joined the workforce is tell them over and over, you don't need to know the big plan. Right. You don't have, you know, you're, you're, you're the knowledge that you have acquired. We now are erasing <laughs> and we, we do this over and over and over. This is how you succeed in this business. Keep your eyes on the, keep your eyes on what's right in front of you. And then, and then uh, the only people we promote to the high ranks are people who have demonstrated they can do that. And then we turn to them and say, what do we do next? We've invaded Iraq. Now, how do we build a, a how do we build a coalition with five different factions that have traditionally hated each other? Mm. And how do we pacify this nation and put, and build a democratic state? A uh, uh, general, and the general's like, well, I think the first thing we should do is machine gun a bunch of people. And we go, huh? Well, this guy's a general, you know, and <laughs> and so. So our so what we end up doing is we we um, the military is tr- tremendously good at these jobs and corporations are too tremendously good at like implementing action strategies but somewhere up somewhere when people make it through to this to these management positions all of a sudden we mistakenly accrue to them wisdom that they actually don't have yeah 
And that was, that was a real eye opener. I mean, I had a lot of people on these military bases tell me that they did not know what they were doing there. And I'm not just talking about like soldiers, like officers really saying our mission here is to do this thing. And I would say, well, how does that thing fit into the, not even the global picture, but how does it just fit into the regional picture? And they would say, well, we collect information and we send it up the chain and we don't actually interpret the information we collect here. So we don't really know what we're doing. And that is important because that's how the military works, right? It's, it's important that the, that everything be discreet and that the people who are in charge of interpreting information, maybe they're based in Brussels. Mm Mm-hmm. And so our job is just to go out and, and do these assigned tasks. And in a way you go, huh, well, okay, I see you are, you guys are a piece of the puzzle. And if you're looking at the whole thing as a puzzle, like I get it. You're the, you, you, you're running the bulldozers down here. Right. But in fact, the only the only people that really know what you know what's going on are i mean honestly what the air smells like in a place right are these you know these people who are actually there and in fact we count on them to they're the people that the locals meet and see and so they're doing all this other work that we're not accounting for right all this all this pr work and all this police work and all this building the building the water purifier for the people in the village and all this other stuff this soft science um but we're not we're not factoring that into how we train them and we're kind of denying that they do it in a way by saying like oh well that's not you know that's not part of the mission we don't want to hear we're not asking you what you think about the local culture we're telling you what we, we people sitting around a, a, a big wood table in Brussels are going to tell you what we need you to do. And that's the extent of your usefulness. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm because since I've been back, I'm, I, I opened the newspaper and, and a week later in response to the Paris bombings. Yeah. Uh, the people in the streets of Naimi, Niger, where I was, a week and a half before are rioting in the streets and burning Christian churches. Wow. And, you know, and protesting in front of the embassy and burning uh, the, the French embassy and burning things in effigy and all this stuff. And, you know, I was, I was just there. I was playing in the U S embassy across the street. Right. And now there's a coup happening in Yemen. There are bombings in Mali and all of these bases that I just visited are in play in these these events that that a month ago I would have read those stories in the newspaper and been like, hmm, yeah, a bombing a bombing in Mali, eh? Well, you know, I'll put that right on top of this stack of things to read later. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know, Dan. It's heavy stuff, man. Well, particularly since 
you know, this is a, this has been a, this is a traditional area of interest for me, right? Like how do we, what, what are our responsibilities as civilian Americans mm-hmm. who are not, we don't have jingoistic ideas about um, the American purpose and place in the world, right? We have a realistic idea like of what America is and what she can do. Right. We want America to do a good job. We want the world to be a nice place and a safe place. And you can't just say you can't be an isolationist, but you can't be a you can't be a neocon. Like how do you develop a nuanced strategy? How do you what is our civilian responsibility vis-a-vis the military? Right? I mean the the the, the, the leftists so often are just contemptuous of the military and there's never a, there, there's not a, a very good understanding that the civilians have to have the ideas. We, the right, the military can't, we can't turn to them for the ideas because we, because their culture is fundamentally against them coming up with any new ideas. Right. <laughs> they, th- that's baked into the way that they do business. And so where do the ideas come from? They have to come from us, the civilian world. And the idea that the civilians don't have anything to tell the military is absolutely backwards. The civilians are the, we have to be the brains of the military. And so many of us abdicate that responsibility. So, and, and my, you know, myself included, I, I'm, I'm, I, I fall into the trap that we all do, which is just like, well, the I mean, that guy's got four stars. He's, he's got to know more about Afghanistan than I do. Yeah. But the fact is that guy with four stars has only been in Afghanistan for a week and a half. And, and uh, he doesn't know anything about it. All he knows is the military perspective, which is let's dig some holes and shoot some guns. But at some, at some level that has to change, right? There, there have to be people at, at a certain point making decisions who didn't go that path, right? Is this more like the enlisted side versus the officer side or the officers? I mean, the officers are trained. It's, I mean, the military is ultimately an engineering firm, right? Everything they do has some mechanical engineering component. There is no, um, there's no comparative literature department in the, in the military. And so everybody that succeeds there succeeds just as you would in an engineering firm. Like, can you get the job done? Right. Yes. And the client of an engineering firm is an architect or a, or somebody who wants something built who Mm -hmm. comes in and is like, Oh, we want it to be beautiful. And the engineers go, well, here, there's five reasons why it can't be beautiful. And, Somehow the engineers and the, and the artists hammer out a way to build the bridge so that it's beautiful and, and can stand up in a windstorm. Yeah. And the military are the engineers in that story. And the people who, the artists, you know, the people who have to come in and say, here's the idea. That is the State Department and the media. Honestly, the media. Um, but, but the, but the, but the civilian population as a whole, the president, like people who are, who have come 
from the other side and who say like, right, I understand that you guys want to um, send out nightly patrols where we kick down doors and, um, and round up every military age person because you feel like that is the way to secure a town. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a lot of, we've written a lot of books over the last 400 years about how what that does is make people mad and not like you. <laughs> and so we can't defer to you army because obviously that's what you want to do. And that's not an indictment of you. We've asked you to learn how to do that. But, but we need to recognize what their, what their role in like a civil society is, which is to be the implementers of one side of the, of the project. And, and, and we don't, we, we are underfunding and, and we're not thinking seriously enough about the other side, which is, which should be this world of, of, of discussion. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to undo the damage of 150 years of colonialism in a lot of these places. And, uh, and we're just not thinking enough about it on the, that seems impossible. Civilians. It seems impossible. Well, yeah, sure. It always does. <laughs> and then, and then later on, you look back at, you look back and it all seemed inevitable. Mm. I mean, the colonial borders in Africa and the middle East were idiotic, but they, but at the time they seemed like they were solving some real problems. And now we're all suffering the fallout from them. Yeah. And we're, we have these, these like ludicrous empire building projects where it's like, listen, this country, Iraq was drawn up by a British guy a hundred years ago. And he drew some of these borders just because he had a ruler Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's been a, it's that, that, created an an unstable and untenable situation the day that map came out. And here we are, we're still trying to prop up these borders that make no sense. And why? And who's doing the deep thinking on it? It shouldn't be the generals. Yeah. For the love of God. It barely should be people in the State Department. What it should be is people, you know, people, uh, honestly, bloggers. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I, I believe that, right? I mean, the, the, the promise of the internet is that we have access to the interesting thoughts of people who never would have had a voice before. People who, for whatever reason, wouldn't have had the opportunity to put their thoughts on the table. And most of those people with interesting thoughts are spending too much time bitching and moaning and live tweeting the Oscars and too little time saying, you know what? It is equally my responsibility to grapple with these big questions Mm -hmm. and to make, to make proposals and to, you know, to, to run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. And we're all terrified to do it because of course, if you put a blog post out there about like my my thoughts vis-a-vis Iraq, you get 500 angry emails from people who have never been, you know, who have never been uh, 15 blocks away from where they were born. But, but we can't, you know, we can't let that be what the internet 
we can't let that, that be what the character of the internet is for much longer. Like too much, too much is riding on it. Too much negativity, right? Well, too much negativity and the lost product, the, the lost possibility of all of, I mean, remember when the, when you first had a complete conception of what the internet was? Oh yeah. And wasn't it a utopian feeling? You <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was like, oh wow, we finally all of the all of the structures that have kept us in bondage are going to be intellectual bondage. We're going to be able to break those now, and and we're finally going to give free voice to all of you know all of the radical ideas and all of the and we're going to be able to weigh those ideas on the strength of their of the of the thinking rather than on who said it or mm -hmm. or whether the new york times decided it was worth uh, you know including in the paper and there's some of that for sure but i just i feel like there are so many smart people out there who have who have settled for writing and commenting on pop culture or writing and commenting on other people writing and commenting on pop culture. Right. You're kind of saying that's, that's almost the easy way out. They're wasting, wasting their talent. Well, because it's so confusing to, to think about, like, how do you address the colonial ramifications, you know, or how do you address post-colonialism in Africa? It just feels, even if you're interested in that stuff, it just feels so overwhelming. Yeah. And particularly when you think like, okay, I, I've got five ideas. I want to put those out there. The first thing I'm going to be accused of is, I mean, the first five things I'm going to be accused <laughs> of are, are like so harsh and so ugly. The accusations I can imagine are going to be so ugly. I just don't want to wake up in the morning and, and read those posts on mm -hmm. my Twitter feed. Right. So instead I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the new Batman movie and I'm going to get some angry stuff about, I'm going to get some angry tweets about that, but I realize that Batman doesn't matter and so I can laugh that stuff off. Right. I can have strong opinions about Batman and you know what? That's okay. Right. But if I talk about, you know, if I talk about the Balfour declaration and mm -hmm. what, and how we should regard the aftermath, or if I talk about, about tribalism in the 21st century or the U S military role in Africa, on the internet, I'm going to get trolled from all sides and I'm not, you know, I'm, and shouldn't, shouldn't the generals really be doing this work? I mean, is this, does this work really belong to us? It doesn't. Smarter people are somewhere in a think tank in Dulles <laughs> or Alexandria, Virginia. And those people really should be making the, you know, should be making the call. And in fact, a, a lot of those people are less qualified to think strategically than just your average person that's been reading the newspaper for 20 years. I mean, I really feel that way. Talk, talking to people on the ground, smart people, I'm not, uh, smart people who are incredibly capable, but they, they freely admit that their, that their careers have been in an institution that does not encourage them to have a to have a, a strategic 
worldview. Mm -hmm. And just your average person that follows the news can construct like a global view or a, a, you know, a strategic view and that, and, and, and I, and I, I feel like that should be what, what, what we spend so much more of our time talking about. And that is so much more interesting, but, uh, but of course it's hard. It's, it's hard and it's, and it can be ugly. Um, but, but boy, I, I feel a new, I feel a, a, a renewed responsibility to be part of a, to be part of the conversation as an American and as a, like a patriotic American or as somebody that believes in America and yeah. feels like, you know, feels that, um, I want us to do good work in the world. If we're going to be out there, right. If we're going right, to, right. if we're going to be building drone bases in these places, should we not also be building some kind of, um, should we not also be working on other kinds of outreach? Do we not actually still believe in democracy as a thing? Like even that idea has been so tarnished because of the neocon approach of like, okay, here's democracy and we're just going to shove it down your throats. And if you don't like it, we're going to blow you up. Right. But that doesn't discredit democracy. It doesn't make it an ugly thing. And it doesn't mean that we should sit back and say like, well, female genital mutilation is part of their culture. So I guess it's a thing that we just, you know, we just let ride. Yeah, that seems like, wrong. I think that seems wrong yeah. to everyone. Well, yeah, but you know, but but if you if you're going to go after that, you have to go after you have to you have to build a new mentality. And that is colonialist. I mean, it's just it's it goes around and around and around. Or it can be colonialist, you know. And 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 it's and it's fascinating, right? And it and it and it should be something that we're that we're thrilled to talk about and argue about, and have differing opinions about, and not default immediately to pointing fingers at each other and calling each other all the dirty names that we can think of, which seems to be like what our culture is, what internet culture is. Right? Is people can't people can't disagree without it immediately reverting into into that kind of name calling thing. It's like people are are so intimidated by someone else having an opinion that's different from theirs. Uh, that that they're they're either they're either going to immediately drop into the name calling that you're describing, or they're just well, you know what? I just won't get involved in that. I just won't talk about that at all. Yeah, it's so frustrating because I mean, there are all these right. There are the people that that just have boxes that they're ticking. Like, hmm, what you just said sounds racist. It's like, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! What are you talking about? Uh, like, if if every if you know if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, but then this whole business around this movie, American Sniper. Right. Have you seen that? I did just see it. And obviously it is a jingoistic fantasy where every, every, uh, uh, Iraqi is a bad guy and every American is a hero, but it's a, it's a great war movie. But the idea that if you, but the idea that you can say like, oh, this uh, guy, this sniper guy is a, a complicated guy. B, he's doing a complicated job. C, for a military that has a complicated and incomplete idea of what it should be doing in mm -hmm. this place. Like, as soon as you say any of those things, there, there's 50% of the country that 
has decided that you're a communist. <laughs> and trying to address that side of the world and say like, hey, I'm, a, I'm an American who used to know every tank and airplane in the army. I feel like I should, I feel like I should get a flag pin at least for once, once upon a time caring about the AC one thirty. but, but more to the point, like I can recognize that this guy is complicated and so can you. And that doesn't threaten, it doesn't threaten us to say like, to say something nuanced about American Sniper. We don't all have to say either that it is the greatest movie in the world and America is the greatest country in the world or that he's a stone cold killer and a and a heartless redneck. Yeah. But where, you know, like maybe your listeners can point me to the blogs where people are talking about stuff that's hard to talk about. I mean, uh, you mean like the Apple Watch? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you know, or like, I mean, what I what I'm really interested in is is ethics in in uh, in game journalism. That's right. But I mean, I know I know there are places, and I know that I, that if I spent enough time, I would be I I could I could root out these little tiny places in the in the internet where people are um, having moderated discussions with each other. Our next sponsor is Harry's, Harry's harrys.com. These guys make something pretty cool. They make razors. Let's say razors, right? Like I go to the grocery store and buy those. Yeah, you do. And you pay way, 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 way too much. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a really nice weighted razor handle, not a cheap uh, piece of plastic, and there were razor blades that were really, really sharp and shaved really, really well, and that you could get them for like half the price? Of the kind in the grocery store? Yeah, that's pretty much what Harry's does. Harry's.com. Two guys started this thing passionate about creating a better shaving experience. And how do they give you a better shave? They use these great blades that are made in this factory in Germany that they actually wound up buying. They bought the factory because these guys were making the best blades anywhere. And they cut out the middleman, right? You can't buy these things, uh, you know, in a store, in a grocery store. You're going to pay a fortune for them. You get them at a fraction of the cost. By getting them right from Harry's. They've got this really awesome starter kit. It's everything you need for 15 bucks. It includes a razor, three blades. They last a while. And, uh, and your choice of either the shaving cream or the foaming gel. And uh, I, like the, I like the cream. You're going to get five bucks off if you use the code COMICS. That supports this show, and it gets you five bucks off on their starter kit or any other order that you're going to put in to get started here. So what you do is you go to Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Coupon code is COMICS. Go check this out. These things make great gifts. Gift for yourself. You can get these things engraved. That's what I did. I got a bunch of people uh, those. Now, they, they target this stuff at men, but women love these too. Try it. Harry's.com. Code is COMICS. Thanks very much to Harry's for, uh, for supporting this show. But, you know, when you talk about this utopian vision that we had uh, of, uh, I remember in uh, in that the other show that you do, you were talking a number of months ago about how you um, you were doing the suburban thing and you were on a website that had the little under construction stuff with all the little moving, dancing, you know, things around <laughs> on it. And, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. And, uh, you know, now listening to you talk about that, about that utopian vision, I mean, I remember that I thought, you know, like... This internet thing is going to let people talk about 
really great topics, whatever they are, whether it's computers or movies or politics or sports or whatever, like mm-hmm. it's going to open the door to this great conversation. I think we all believed that mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago. And I think people maybe still believe that or maybe we should believe that. But it, it seems like the minute that you come out with a strong opinion about anything, about any, you know what? Dynamic mics work better for broadcasting than condenser mics. <laughs> whoa, my God! Whoa, whoa! You know, you're it's, a fucking idiot. Yeah, it's it's a firestorm all of a sudden. Like, it's how dare you say such a thing? And that, well, then you have that. Well, it depends a lot on the acoustic treatment of the room. Before you know, like like it, we're talking about a microphone, or we're talking, you know, and it, what you're talking about are things that actually <laughs> that actually matter. And, you know, and, and it's funny because it's, there's this, there's this potential that's there for these great discussions to happen. And sometimes they do. Sometimes you can, you can find really great discussions and really great pieces that are, that are out there that, that bring these issues up there. But every time that happens, I feel like the person who, who went out on a limb to say something controversial it gets attacked for it, gets punished for it, gets beaten down for it, gets uh, threats for it. That it's like, f- screw that, I'm not doing that. Why well, would I do I, that? Why would I put, why would I put my, you know what, I'll just talk about it with my friends here in town who I know won't, you know, threaten to bomb my house. Right, right. Well, and even, and I, th- I feel like even among my friends, there's a, f- there's a feeling now almost that they are being surveilled, right? That, that, Oh yes, they, totally. If they're, if they're willing to, if they're willing to talk about stuff now, they are less they're, they're It's much more like, well, people come up to me and want to talk to me about stuff that I have said on, uh, on various podcasts. And there's always a conspiratorial feeling now, even if the material is not especially controversial, they kind of lean in and they're like, well, that thing that you said, it actually really resonated with me. Yeah. And I'm like, well, great. Why are we whispering? They're like, well, I mean, it's, you know, what, you know, I don't want everybody to, you know, because what if somebody accuses me? What if somebody points the finger and and goes, (laughs) j'accuse and, and, you know, and the answer from a lot of people uh, is well, you need to have a thick skin. You need to just brush it off. But we are we are genetically programmed to not want people to yell at us, right? right. No, right. Nobody wants to wake up in the morning, have that first cup of coffee, turn on their computer, and realize that something they said innocently uh, or thoughtfully somewhere the day before has inspired seventy five people to write them and say, "You're an idiot," and I hope you die. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's easy to say, like, well, brush it off. But, you know, a lot of us uh, are artists because we have a lot of feelings, Mm -hmm. right? But the other day, I was driving in my car with my daughter, whom you've met. Yes, lovely, lovely girl. And my my daughter and and your daughter uh, have many things in common. They're almost exactly the same age. They have almost exactly the same name. And they are beautiful. And they're beautiful, perfect creatures. Beautiful, uh, and they are going to one day uh, run the world in our stead. Right. But she, she, we're riding along in the car, and she says, Daddy, what's the internet? <laughs> because she hears it about it all the time. Right. And I start to try and describe the internet to her. And I immediately start feeling like a total asshole. Why is that? I'm like, well, I'm like, well, before you were born... Once upon a time, 
There were newspapers and magazines and radios and TVs. And there were um, movie theaters and uh, all these places. If you wanted to see a movie, you went to the movie theater. Right. And if you wanted to read a, a, a story, you went to the library. And if you wanted to get a book and take it home, you went to the bookstore. And she's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm with you so far. And I'm like, and then we decided that that wasn't fast enough or convenient enough. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to put all, and we, we, we decided because we could, that all those things needed to live in a special place where they didn't exist, where we could get to them all the time on our phones. And I'm just, I'm, as I'm saying it, I'm just like, I sound like a fucking idiot. <laughs> and she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, and now the reason that daddy looks at his phone all the time is it has all the books and movies <laughs> and magazines in the world on the phone so I don't have to deal with the incredible inconvenience of looking at a magazine. Now I'm staring at this little thing and I can't say for sure that that has improved any aspect of my life, but here we are and it's real. And mommy has a job where her company works on the internet for the internet. (laughs) So there's not even a thing I can, they don't make a thing. They just make the internet more internet-y. And, it, and she's just looking at me like, you know, and she's a four-year-old, but it should be easy to explain. And every word that was coming out of my mouth, I was just like, oh, God, why is there an internet? What is the internet and why? Is it, just, is it really just a thing that we built because we could and now it exists and one day it will it will reveal its purpose its meaning and and it will reveal that it is actually a good thing and and it will be explainable to a child but right now what it is is it's just that we learned that that, that we developed all these capabilities to digitize information and once we had developed them the next logical step was to connect them all but that it actually has no real purpose we didn't build it because we needed it we built it we built it because it was just the next logical step as we developed uh, the ability to and that's it that you know like we built a lot of things in the history of humankind because we needed them built like we built roads and dams and electrical grids. And I guess maybe the electrical grid is a good example, right? We, we built it a long, a long time before everybody had a, had an electric mixer. Yeah. We built it initially because we wanted to have light bulbs in the outhouse <laughs> because it sucked to go out to the outhouse in the dark and, and, go to the bathroom and so when we developed the ability to have light bulbs it was like let's let's string wire all across the country so everybody can have this 
And it was only later that we were like, hey, wow, mixing electric mixers and electric washing machines and, and microwaves. And we've sort of done the same thing with the internet. We've built these wires and to do this thing that's like, well, hey, you can look at a magazine now on your phone. Mm-hmm. What about that, huh? Pretty good trick, right? And we just haven't figured out no one has actually developed a reason for it, a, conv- a convincing reason for it. Well, I think initially it was so that the scientists at the universities could share their, their research with one another, which, right. you know, uh, which seems, seems well, like a good, the, good reason. Yeah, but they used to write letters to each other. Yeah. It just was, it just was just a way faster. for them. Yeah, faster. <laughs> right. It was just a way to do it faster because God knows life is short. Yes. And there's so much stuff we need to get done. In the time in bet- while we're waiting for those letters to arrive, and now we can send those emails off and get back to watching the Bob's Burger Marathon, mm-hmm. which was waiting there in our queue. I mean, I'm a utopian, but boy, I'm also a technophobe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, Dan. You should know this stuff. This is your stock and trade. Yeah, is it? I mean, I the, think about this. What is the internet for? What is it for? What, what good is it? Well, I had a really good X Files fan page uh, in <laughs> 1995. Explain it to a four year old. Yeah, I was. You know, it, it's easier to explain it to a seven year old because my my son was asking me about this pretty recently because it, at school this year in his in his he's in first grade they have a computer lab. So even though I've had a computer on the table at home, you know, since uh, his whole life, uh, you know, uh, he's suddenly interested in computers. Yeah. See, he's had an, he's had his own iPad for many years and plays games on it. And it's, it's for games. And he's discovered also that there are ways to, to watch TV and movies on the iPad, uh-huh. but he doesn't like, there's this, there's this very, very clear distinction in his mind between what a computer is and what an iPad is because the iPad has always been for like for playing games and like occasionally like when he was first learning to read like phonics stuff like it was like a phonics game you know letter games um but like the computer was in even though even though we've always had it and I've tried to uh uh you know I've tried to to get him interested in it for one way or another it wasn't until he sort of was introduced and like now on Wednesdays for an hour, we use these computers here at school. And he, of course, knew what Apple was and uh, and knew the and he said, well, they're they're, you know, they're Apple computers at, at school, too. They're Macs. I said, oh, yeah. I said, we ha- you have that, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, Dad, do you know about computers? <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And he said, could you teach me about computers? And I was like, I've been waiting for you to ask me that question for about seven years now. Yes, I can teach you about them. And it's, it's fascinating though, because of the, his approach to them is different. Like, so he gets, he knows what a website is. He knows what a web browser is. I know that they didn't explain this in school. It was like this, they just like launch, they use Firefox at school. You know, like they just knew how to launch an app already. All of the kids, they could launch Firefox. They Then they learned that they had to type 
something into the URL or click a bookmark in the URL. They just these are instinctual things for pretty much all of the kids in his first grade class. And he came home and I, you know, we had an old computer and I said, yes, you can you can use this one, you know. So if you spill, you know, juice into it, it's fine. And uh, and, you know, but just seeing this concept like he gets that there's information out there. And as he's learning to read, he now understands that like on these pages out there, there are words and he can absorb the information that they contain. Even though he's got a web browser on his iPad, it never occurred to him to to use it in that way. There's this very clear distinction between the stuff on the computer and the stuff on the iPad. And, right. you know, like at, at one point, there was a book that he wanted to read uh, or that I read to him at, you know, at bedtime. And there was a book that he wanted me to read. And I said, you know what, I'll just get this one on, on the Kindle since we haven't had time to like go to Barnes & Noble for whatever reason. So we had a Kindle paper white. I'm sitting there reading from it from that. And he's like, well, what happens when you're done, you know, with this book? And I said, well, you know, just we can get another book or we can read the next Lemony Snicket book, whatever you want to do. And he's like, no, no. He's like, what happens to the Kindle? I said, well, I just, you know, it's got lots of books on it. He's like, how many? I'm like, like thousands. This blew him away. Even though he has hundreds of games on his iPad, you know what I mean? It's like it, it's it's the way still, that still blows me away. Yeah, no, it really it really does because like he's also got a long stack of all the books that we've read together or that he's read up on his on his shelf, you know, and like he can see them. And I asked him after that. I said, "Is it?" I said, "Do you feel like it's more authentic or genuine to read a, a hardcover book or, or read it on the Kindle? Do you have a preference?" He's like, "Well, the hardcover books are way better." I said, why? I'm reading them to you. What do you care? <laughs> you know? And he's like, well, I just, it, it, he's like, it feels better. It's like, we've actually read it. Yeah. How does he know that at seven? You know, why does he think that at seven? And like, for me, it was a big, I know you're huge into comic books. It's, you know, a big part of your mm-hmm. life. Uh, mm-hmm. But like for I'm me, a, I'm really more of a, you know, Marvel uh, uh-huh. comic book. Mm-hmm. Me than too. I am a, uh, another one, another kind. Yeah. I don't even like yeah. to name the other ones. No, to I be don't. honest, just, I respect that. Superman, come on! I know, dumb, dumb. Anyway, but I transitioned to like all digital stuff, you know, uh, comic books, comic books. You transitioned to I tra- digital comics. I did that. Come on, I did, man. and I mean, this is like I'll still buy. There's a few I'll buy in paper that I've been collecting for a long time, but most of them are digital, and that's the weird thing. It's that, that like conceptually. That was a weird thing. I'd been using a Kindle and reading stuff online forever, right? But like somehow comic books, I remember I was talking to to one of my friends about this. I'm like, but see, like they're supposed to be on paper. And he said, yeah. why? Like they're drawing them digitally now half the time anyway. At least they're coloring them digitally if, if nothing else. Yeah, but how are you going to put Silly Putty on a <laughs> iPad? <laughs> Transfer. <laughs> and get the Incredible Hulk. And stretch and them out. Stretch them out. <laughs> You know, I've never shown my kid that. What kind of parent am I? I've See? never done that. So much of our of our collective memory is going to be lost in the next in the next dozen years. In the next dozen minutes, at this rate, <laughs> you know, he because he's going to have the thing is he, your grandkid is he even going to call it a book or like what is the word book going to mean? Yeah, what is the word? And, hey, what does the word album mean now? Well, you know, I talk about albums with my daughter, and this is the thing. They are this they are this generation in between, right? Because she's going to talk about albums because that's how I describe 
you know, a, a collection of music. Yeah. Uh, and she grew up reading, reading books, but, but perhaps perchance they are the last generation that, that will, and they're going to be talking about albums and books. And maybe those words will survive mm-hmm. as some kind of, you know, uh, as some kind of echo or maybe we will decide that maybe there will be an electromagnetic pulse and all of this will go down and we'll go back to reading books. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there will be some, maybe we'll decide that some things are better in book form, but I don't see that happening. I don't see people deciding like, you know, some books are good. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I used to read reference books uh, on a daily basis. And my whole life, you know, there was always something that, sent you to a reference book and now I haven't looked at a reference book in five years Yeah, because obviously you're going to Google something before you're going to go over to the encyclopedias. Mm -hmm. That's just, and I don't, I don't feel any real loss there. There is that, there is that weird sense of loss of like, I used to go look at something in the encyclopedia and then read the entry after it. And read the entry after that and discover all these weird things that just because they were alphabetical. But that happens on Google because you you click a hyperlink, you go and pretty soon you're down a a hole and you're reading about something you wouldn't have. That isn't why you went there. So there is an equivalent. But I don't I don't I don't look back at dictionaries and encyclopedias and feel like, oh, man. Something's lost mm-hmm. by not having to, sh- you know, to like schlep that huge dictionary over to the couch and, f- you know, figure out this, figure out the meaning of this dumb word. But hearing you say that you don't buy paper comic books anymore, mm-hmm. that breaks my heart. Really? Because it does. It feels to me like the whole business of a comic book is that it's that once you're done reading it, you put it over in its special place. Yeah, but you bag and board it, put it in, you know, alphabetized you bag in the and board thing. it, and then it's in your, then it's there, and yeah. then you have, you own it, and no one can ever take it away from you. And if you need to go back and say, wait a minute, what's the origin story of Storm? Right. I really need to get back, and you can just you go flip through your thing. But I mean, uh, pff, the origin story of Storm is probably on the internet. The more I think about it, well, that's that's the thing is that it is it is somewhere out there, or you can get it right away. You don't have to. Again, we talk. You talk about the speed of things. Like it's right there. Like I, if if I'm busy on Wednesday, even though I love my local comic store, I don't I don't have to wait till I can get to the local comic store to get the books that I want. They're just they're right there in Comicsology. Boom. Oh, that just makes me poop. <laughs> because none of us are that busy. There's not that much going on. I mean, honestly, there really isn't that much to do. I spend hours every day just trying to fill the fill the. But you're living, you're living the dream up there, filling the increments of time between now and my inevitable death. Yeah, and I go, huh? Well, it's been twenty minutes since I had a cupcake. <laughs> Propriety and dignity <laughs> prohibit me from having another cupcake <laughs> for forty-five to fifty minutes. So I've got what, you know, uh, almost an hour to kill here, flipping through some magazines, reading a coffee table book about motorcycles. Oh, that only took a couple of minutes. 
you know, all the labor-saving devices are busy churning away, making cakes for me and washing my clothes. And we're basically living in the robot utopia that we envisioned. Mm -hmm. But I'm not building an Eiffel Tower out of toothpicks, right? Either are you, presumably. No. Those aren't getting built anymore, frankly. When was the, what was the last Eiffel Tower out of toothpicks you saw? I haven't seen one in a long time. I did, be, you know, I used to take the ball of clay and put the toothpicks in it and make a little, you know, porcupine. <laughs> but I never, I never did an Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Uh-huh. You were looking for that instant gratification <laughs> yeah. of like, Eiffel Tower seems like a lot of work, but I can make a porcupine in, in a minute and a half. Yeah. Because I'm a busy kid. But don't run with those. <laughs> I honestly don't think we're that busy. Uh, I think that a lot of it is fake busyness, Dan. You know that. You know that that's my feeling. Yes. Fake busyness. Fake busyness. Revenue generation. You've seen the changes in Austin. Yes. Do you remember when rush hour in Austin was just like, seemed like just a manageable thing? When I first moved here, um, three or so years ago, I think was the, was the tail end of that. I caught just the very, very end of that. Uh-huh. When it, when it was five o'clock at night and you could get in your car and be like, well, I'll be home in a little bit. Yeah. And now what's it like? <sighs> Forget it. Forget it, right? Forget it. That's true in Seattle too. It is, we're for, we are, we have arrived at full on forget it. Like at five o'clock at night, you might as well go sit in the toilet and cry <laughs> for, for all the good it's going to do you to get in your car. And what are all these people doing? What are they doing here? And why are they driving on my roads, first of all? And second of all, like, what makes them think they're so busy? They're not. They're just building internet. <laughs> That's right. Which isn't, just which isn't real. Yeah. Like, and the people that work at Amazon, I guess, are building internet that can, you know, that can deliver toilet paper to your house if you're Merlin Mann. Yeah, he gets everything delivered. Toilet paper. He gets toilet paper delivered. See, that's the perk. The, that's the big from perk. the internet. Of living in San Francisco is they get all that stuff first. You don't even have to buy lettuce yourself anymore. And our last sponsor uh, for today is Squarespace. You've heard about them before because we've told you about them before. They have a uh, brand new version of their software out, Squarespace 7. It's completely redesigned. It integrates with Google Apps. They've got a partnership with Getty Images to get you the most amazing stock images. So super cheap. New templates. They got this feature called cover pages. So that if you want like a really cool entry page for your site or you want to do one of those awesome one page sites where it just has like you know, even a coming soon page. That's what cover pages are really, really good for. But the overall beautiful design, super easy to work with, simple, powerful stuff, 24-7 support. Read the live chat and email, and it starts only eight bucks a month. Eight bucks a month for a website that lets you do a blog, landing pages, host a podcast, sell stuff, all built in for eight bucks a month. You gotta be kidding me! It's a good deal. If you sign up for one year, you also get a free domain name. Responsive design, these things are gonna look good on every platform out there. Go check them out. No credit card or any of that nonsense required. The URL to visit, and even just visiting this URL will support the show. So go check it out. Squarespace.com slash back to work. The code you will use is it's your show. All one word. That will get you 10% off your first purchase. It will support the show. Squarespace. 
start here, go anywhere. They're going to have to run with that. I'm just an idea guy. Squarespace.com slash back to work. Code, it's your show. Thanks very much to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and back to work. There is still toilet paper in stores, but probably not for long. Right? What are you going to do when you walk into a store and there's no toilet paper in there? There's just... What are they going to sell in stores? Yeah, what would they sell? Um, what are they going to sell in stores that you can't get on the internet? Like... Uh, well, I was reading this morning. I was reading this morning. There's um, uh, Fender announced that they're going to be selling, like, selling guitars themselves right from... They will not be undercutting their retail prices in, in local stores, but they're going to be selling too, as well as all the other online places, you know. But, you know, like, I, if I'm going to go buy a guitar... I want to play it first. Like, I don't just mm-hmm. want to mail order a guitar, you know? Well, because you're, you're this old fogey with this old kind of thinking. Is that, but even with something like that, like, would you, would you, would you mail order a car you've never driven? I think people are just going to, they're just going to do it. I, I started using eBay not very long ago, which was a terrible mistake. It kind of ruined my life for a little bit. <laughs> how, how so? How so? Well, because I don't like to send things back. I feel like it's just bad faith or whatever. I mean, I feel like if you're going to buy something, particularly if they, you know, like people that are selling coats on the internet, Uh they they put the (laughs) measurements on there. Yeah. And it's like, look, I'm a busy guy. Uh I got a lot of digital comic books to read. (laughs) Right. I don't have time to take a tape measure out and figure out how long my arms are. So you're calling this an extra large. I'm, I feel like I'm an extra large. Fine. I'll get it. It's 25 bucks. Right. The thing arrives in the mail. The sleeves are too short. Well, it's my fault that I didn't measure my arms. Uh huh. And so I don't feel good about sending it back to the guy because he, he measured it. He told me the truth. <laughs> yeah. So I just take this thing that I bought for 25 bucks and I throw it in the, in the, the Goodwill bin, mm-hmm. I take it immediately to Goodwill and somebody else gets it for five ninety nine, and I, and I keep the economy moving. Right. That's your job. But I, but I don't want to, I don't want to be doing that. That's bad. That's, that is financially a bad investment strategy mm-hmm. to buy things that don't fit out of sort of laziness mm-hmm. <laughs> and then give them away immediately. But I feel like people who are younger than me who just buy things on the internet, first of all, I bet you they measure their arm. Yeah. And then the thing arrives and they, they're not, they don't, it never even occurred to them to go to the guitar store and play it because everything comes through the internet. So the guitar arrives and that's what it plays like. And that's what they settle for. Right. They don't, they don't do what we used to do. I mean, going to the guitar store and playing 10 guitars and picking the one that you like the best, I feel like the the contemporary culture looks at that as an unnecessary waste of time and, you know, squandering of our important, uh, you know, the, 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 the important hour and a half that you could have been playing Candy Crush or whatever. <laughs> like, we didn't go do that because we wanted to. We went and did that because we had to, and now we don't have to. And if you look, go online and it says Fender Squire Stratocaster four or three point four stars, right? You think to yourself, "Well, I'm a three point four star guitarist. <laughs> right. That's about what I deserve." And it arrives in the mail, and you're like, "That's what a three point four star guitar plays like." And you just never, it never 
occurs to you to go out and sample all the all the different Kung Pao chickens to yeah. decide which Kung Pao chicken is the Kung Pao chicken that's right for you. But I, I don't imagine you'd be ordering a guitar online anytime soon. No, I can't get my head around it. Yeah. But, but, you know, I'm, I am peculiar. I still buy, I still buy books. I don't own a Kindle. I can't read a book on an iPad. No, I'm but with I you do, on that. I don't like that either. But I do sit and read magazine articles on my phone all day. And that, and, 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 and increasingly, you know, I come up against paywalls. Yeah. And I'm just like, as a musician who has spent the last 10 years telling, have, hearing people tell me that my music should be free, mm-hmm. I am not emotionally swayed by your argument, New York Times, <laughs> that your content is worth money from me like the day the the day that somebody decides that my content is worth money is the day that i will pay a subscription to read economist articles and so i come up against these paywalls and i just feel increasingly like i'm in the you know a minotaur's maze where i'm just trying to get through the maze to some magazine articles that i that i want to read that have the same content as these New York Times articles that I won't pay for. Uh, and they're all out there, right? If the New York Times writes an article about drones, you're going to be able to read it for free somewhere if you just follow the Minotaur's maze a little bit. Yeah. And I'm just, I, so I used to read magazines a lot, and now I do all my magazine reading on the phone. I don't understand why those are different to me than reading books, which I would never consider. Or sacrilege to read a book on on a phone. On on a phone. Or even an iPad. A Kindle feels a little better because it looks more like a piece of paper. Sort of. But I feel, but but reading something on a Kindle, I feel Jeff Bezos (laughs) staring at me through the Kindle (laughs) screen. Yes. I feel his beady little eyes watching me. Uh I'm like, I do not like you, sir. I do not want to support you. Yeah. And you're, and you're, to your desks made out of old doors mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to, I want you to stop watching me and I don't want to, I don't want you to know what I'm reading and I don't want to have your proprietary, uh, g- uh gadget. So, so I, I'm, I'm making the transition boy. I'm, I'm reading these articles a lot on my dumb phone, which is the worst way to read a magazine article. But but every other thing, I'm still I'm still resorting to the analog version, and I'm increasingly feeling like I'm just not gonna that there's gonna be some David Foster Wallace writer mm-hmm. who writes a book that requires you read it in the technology, right? The David Foster Wallace of 2017 is going to write a book where the footnotes are all hyperlinks, yeah. and the hyperlinks are in the book. And integral to the reading experience of the book. It's going to be basically a choose your own adventure. And from that moment forward, all novels are going to be, it's going to be impossible to separate them from the digital technology. And I, and I am ruining that day. Right, because then is that the because day, is that because you're old fashioned? Is it because you're you're getting old? Do you think that you you're holding on to 
an old fashioned, outdated way of, cause that's what I wonder for myself all the time is it's, it's, it's like certain things just feel like, oh, that doesn't seem like the right way to do it. But that's what old people used to say when we were young. Well, yeah, but, but the thing that, that scares me the most is that the whole capitalist model now is attached to um, subscription. Everybody has decided that they're not selling you anything that you can take home. What mm-hmm. they're selling you is a, a monthly subscription to things. And so the first novelist that writes a book like that, then the next novelist is going to write a book like that, which is proprietary to Kindle. Mm-hmm. And you can't read it unless you have a Kindle because the Kindle has features that uh, that allow you access to the meta levels of the novel that other devices don't don't do. And then we're down the we're down the rabbit hole where novels are technology are technology dependent, proprietary technology dependent and pretty soon require that you you know that you have a, you'd be constantly paying, you know, like international space dollars to even engage with the culture. And it's, it's such a departure from like going into a bookstore, paying for a book, walking out the door, sitting in a park and reading the book. And like you, you and the book are, can be alone in the world together. Yeah. You know, you can go up to a cabin in the remote Alaska wilderness and read your Lewis Lamore novels and, some old seventies playboys and feel like you are connected to the world. Yeah. And we are, it is an old person problem, but it's a, um, but it's this creeping acceptance of the idea that, that the corporation that is building the gizmo is also involved in all these other aspects of our lives, that that corporation that built the gizmo that we like is now a corporate friend of mine. Oh, right. And I am in a relationship with them. And that relationship is one where they give me presents and all they ask in return is that I give them money, loyalty, all my information about myself, and that with every step that I do that, I'm invested in that relationship with them in a way where I can never really get divorced from them. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that's a sea change where we're all just sort of passively acquiescing to this idea that I'm in an emotional, committed relationship with Apple and with Amazon and with YouTube and with Twitter. And these are, these relationships are, are emotionally complex. Right. And are fulfilling my human needs. <laughs> right. Like ask yourself, doesn't it sound, you know, if you think something is crazy, you should say it out loud and, and see how it sounds. And like, there are people who right now are saying, I really love this company, not the company that they founded and started themselves with their loved ones or their best friends. It's not like loving a band, right? But like there are people who, I love this company. I love that company. I want, how can I be more associated with that company? Yeah. Let, let, you know, they're making something amazing. I don't even know what they're making next, but I already want it. I already want it. I'm going to buy their dumb watch. Right. 
<laughs> even though it's the dumbest idea that anybody ever had. I mean, Google Glass, at least you can say like, okay, that was a terrible execution, but a, but that's a kind of an inevitable idea. But that stupid internet watch, oh, so dumb. It doesn't pass the smell test. If you took, if you took 11 10-year-olds and said, what do you think about this idea? They'd be like, <laughs> but people are buying it because they because they love they love that little that little apple i remember in 1995 i was at a rock concert and the girl in front of me was wearing a tank top and you could see on her back she had tattooed the nike swoosh wow and it was a it was some kind of concert that i normally wouldn't have gone to <laughs> some sort of red hot chili peppers thing <laughs> that i got a free ticket to right and so I already felt like I was in a, I was like out of your element. I was out of my element. I was in a different culture. And here was this gal. She was in a, and it wasn't a, it was a sports tank top. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a cool OP seventies oh. skateboard <laughs> tank top. Right. It was a sports bra style thing. Yeah. And she had a Nike swoosh tattooed on her shoulder blade, a big one. Just do it. And I just do it. And I was, that was, you know, Pretty ninety five, pretty early on in the like massive proliferation of tattoos. Yeah, that 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 wave was yet to really come. And I I studied this thing, and I walked home that night, and I and I talked to everybody I knew about it for the next two weeks. Just like, <laughs> what what does that mean? Why would somebody do that? Yeah. What does that symbolize? She likes she likes the tennis shoes that much, or do the tennis shoes and the just do it motto symbolize something yeah like the company embodies what she wants to align herself with yeah right some kind of like like indomitability and action oriented sports life and but but i i was chewing on it and chewing on it and now of course that nike swoosh on her shoulder blade that woman is still out there somewhere and that tattoo is 20 years old Mm. and was you know, she was a, she was an early adopter. She was a forward thinking person. The number of people now that probably have Nike swooshes or Louis Vuitton symbols or Mm -hmm. apples or whatever tattooed on themselves. And that is a thing I could, I will never emotionally be able to, to digest completely. I, I will always be an outsider to the idea of getting, the Mercedes symbol tattooed on yourself. Right. Well, you've got to stop somewhere with something. But think about what you're saying, though, in a bigger sense that, you know, like going back to to when I think when, when we were kids, you know, like you knew that Fisher Price would make toys that would be harder to break. They would last longer. You knew the brand Fisher Price. Mm-hmm. Tonka made the good trucks mm-hmm. and you know, so like, but I never wanted to align myself with the fundamentals that, that made Tonka the company that it was, you know what I mean? I never felt like, well, I, I prefer the Fisher price toys. You know, I want to, I want to be with, with those. That's they're my, they're my toy company. <laughs> you know, they represent what I want in a toy. It was more like, Oh yeah. Fisher price. Like good. Those don't break as much. <laughs> Right. Or really, that's what you can get. Or, you know, I I had this exact experience, Dan, just a week ago. 
I went to a I went to a train show mm-hmm. because that because I'm a man of a certain age. <laughs> Yo, wait, when, when you say train show, you're talking about model trains? That's right. Okay. All right. I opened up the newspaper and there was an ad for the model train show. Okay. The only people that read the newspaper anymore are also want to want go to see go the model train to. show. So it's a it's a perfect a perfect uh <laughs> It's the right place to add they know their demographic. Perfect collaboration. You, you you put a put a small ad in the back of AARP magazine and then a big one in the newspaper. Right. And so I go to the train show, and I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed in in the execution. Of some of these guys they brought they didn't bring their A game uh-huh. to the train show. Okay. Some of the trains were a little bit underthought. If you oh, want, if you want my review. <laughs> but there was a huge the uh, maybe the crowning jewel of this train show was a huge Playmobil train world where the world was constructed of Playmobil people and, and all their little gas stations and airports and farms and, and pirate ships and so forth. And then there was a train running through it and it was very effective, a very effective ad for Playmobil. Okay. And I was like, these Playmobiles are really cool. They resemble, the Fisher Price people right. that I played with when I was a little kid. Why? When did these Playmobiles arrive, and why? And they're obviously kind of superior to the Fisher Price people, even though it pains me to say that. Yeah. So I went home and I did some research, and Playmobil, <laughs> as you do, Playmobil ar- ar- arrived on the scene just after I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, we missed right? we missed the Playmobil stuff. We missed it. We were playing with our Fisher Price little little wood dowels, right? That didn't have arms. That you know that that appeared on the cover of uh, of Sunny Day Real Estate's first album. Uh-huh. The little people that went tuk, 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 and then they fit into little circular slots in a car or a train or a a plane. And I'm looking at these Playmobiles, and I'm thinking. I want to get some of these toys for my daughter, but I actually felt a little bit of brand loyalty. I felt a little heartbreak at betraying my Fisher Price people. Uh-huh. And for a brief moment, I felt like inflicting the Fisher Price people on my daughter out of a sense of brand, uh, like like a loyalty, continuity. yeah, yeah, the lo- loyalty and a feeling like, well, these were good enough for her dad. And then I was like, don't be an idiot. Yeah. The Playmobil people are a thousand times better. They are the evolution of the of the uh of the Fisher Price people. Don't don't feel brand loyalty to Fisher Price. What did they ever do for you? Right. They just made a toy. It was just a dumb toy that they made. But no, I was, you know, I I had to sit and, you know, and and weep. Weep for my lost childhood. Weep for those dumb little dowels. Before I was able, before I was ready to stand back up and walk into this new world of Playmobil. Yeah, but it's uh, why do we? What, I know exactly what you're talking about, but why do we do that? <sighs> you know what I mean? Why? Why is it that we feel like uh, like we should? have that loyalty why were you wondering if you were like a bad person almost for not <laughs> sticking with that thing that you you know what i mean like 
because we're tribal people. Right. That's and what it comes down that, to. Yeah, we think of ourselves as modern and ha- and all of our modernity like is the is the kind it kind of gives the lie to this the, to the idea that we're primitive, but in fact in our hearts we are still primitive tribal thinkers. And I'm probably going to get an angry letter for somebody for equating primitive and tribal. Oh, right. Um, and to that person, I apologize. And you are absolutely right. And unfollow. <laughs> but, you know, we have these we have these hearts. Human beings have been around for, you know, like modern humans have been around for 50,000 years. And we've had electricity for most of that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh for yeah well certainly for most of the last 90 years uh-huh. and so we you know we learned all these uh learned all these traits we inhabited all these traits we are we are we we are people who spent most of our time most of our time on earth figuring out how to live in daub huts with our extended family group and now we're trying to navigate this world and and we're having all these like racial pulls these these distant not not distant echoes where i'm like where i'm grabbing my spear and saying i will defend my fisher price tribe <laughs> and then you know some over voice comes in and is like you're being an idiot there is no tribe there is no you put your spear down and you go oh. I'm so underused. I am so the actual skills that I have are so underutilized and, and I'm attaching, you know, I'm attaching these like actually tremendous powers to these things, these these dumb things. Yeah. Like my ability to, to, to pick up a stick and defend my family is being colonized in my own mind by these companies who are like, well, since your family doesn't need defending, why don't you pick up that virtual stick and defend our brand? Right. Defend what the all. We'll that? give you something to defend. It's, uh, you know, it's like, like we've talked about on, on, on this show in the past, the anxiety that people feel in the, mo- the modern day anxiety, right? Of like, you know, and I, I've told this story back, you know, when, when this show used to be about like helping people, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we, like there was this one time I was, you know, I was talking to Merlin and I was telling him about how my boss, used to send these long emails and he would send them at night. And I was, you know, a, a fool checking my email right before bed, you know, at 1130 at night. Oh, he was trolling your brain. Yeah, oh my God. And he would send these long emails showing how like everything I'd worked on for the past week since his last email was flawed and wrong. And he had this very, uh, he in, the absolute nicest guy, but in his emails, he was a total jerk. And he came across as a very sort of passive aggressive and questioning and this is wrong and this is not right. And, and I would read these emails that would just, like you say, trolling everything I, I've been working so hard on. And, you know, and then you'd get these emails and then like sometimes you'd get them during the day and I'd just be sitting there super stressed out. And, you know, like you realize that you're having this incredibly strong reaction of stress and fear and anger over like an email. And I remember I said to to Merlin this episode, it's like, I'm just a guy sitting in a room 
looking at a computer. Like nothing has really happened. Nothing actually but, happened. Someone but you're sweating like you're being attacked by a lion. Yeah, or like you're getting heart palpitations, or your stomach is upset, or you know, like your shoulders are tensing up, and it's that it's be, like you're being attacked by a lion. And this is kind of like the same thing. It's like we have these more primitive, primal drives in us to like attack and defend and align. And it's strange how they come out in this society with, you know, with whether it's with a brand or a company that you work for or uh, a sports team is the most obvious one, I think, uh-huh. that, you know, like, oh, well, I'm an Eagles fan and you're a Dallas fan, so you must be a pretty horrible person and I hate you. We just met, but I can't believe you wore that Dallas jersey in here. Don't you know this is an Eagles bar? You know, like that kind of – that's real. That's a real yeah. thing. That's not yeah. – to, to people who are listening to this show, uh, some of them may know about sports. Some of them probably don't. But like if you're not aware of that culture, of that of that world, like people really cannot like you because of a team affiliation that you have. Why? Why? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia, so yeah, I like the Eagles and the Phillies. Like, am I a bad person because I didn't grow up in Washington D.C. liking the Redskins? Do 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 I, as a an ex Philadelphian, have a problem with with D.C.? No. Oh, but you better not like the Redskins because they're a terrible team. You know, like that's that doesn't make sense. But people live that way. You know, it's strange to me. I I wonder in myself. Right there are there are a lot of there's a lot of advice cultural advice ever since Buddhism became a fashion in America yeah which which really has only been in you know in living memory oh very much so yeah but there you know there are a lot of approaches to this it's like uh, people would say well once you identify the, those kind of primitive emotions in yourself you want to try and transcend them. Other people would say, well, what we should do is channel those primitive emotions in positive ways. I mean, in myself, I don't see, I don't see an ability to use my mind to trump my emotional life. And my emotional life is very primitive. I think all of our emotional lives are primitive and are you know, are structured to deal with a, a, with a tribal world full of threats. And my intellectual life can, can see this is true, mm-hmm. but I can't impose all my attempts, and they are innumerable throughout my long life, all my attempts to impose my intellectual, uh, like, idea on my emotional life have been have been fruitless and so trying to tame that that primitivism in me i don't i still am unclear like how to channel it and so much of the so many so many of the problems that that we get into in our in our culture in our world even in the small cultures we live in are are so are so easy to understand if you just if you look at people and think oh they're having a they're they're having this this reaction 
like they're being attacked by a lion right now and they're out they are out of control because their their emotional life is is misperceiving the threat or is yeah you know misgaging uh and and that isn't a, that isn't really even a flaw in them it's just a fact that we were you know we 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 evolved to live in a very different world than the one we're living in and personally i don't know how to how to help myself make sense of those two competing narratives but you find yourself my, in in those situations uh, I, on an hourly basis yeah where i'm just like Intellectually, I see that this situation is no threat to me, and in fact, it's a humorous—it's uh, a humorous boondoggle. And this will make a really funny article that I probably won't ever write, but mm-hmm. if I did, it would be really funny. But emotionally, I'm going, <laughs> and and even as i'm screaming and clenching and and uh and 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 the you know and and fighting between fury and shame or whatever the you know whatever it is that's happening even as that's going on there's this little you know there's this voice over the top going this really isn't anything it yeah. doesn't matter yeah. it's not a thing you're just and that and it just it just sounds like a nanny trying to comfort an orangutan You know, and it's just, yeah, it's like, oh, it's like Mary Poppins trying to explain something, uh, you know, to a water buffalo. And so I don't, I, I, I wrestle with that all the time and I'm not able to, I'm not able to, uh, impose a kind of like, um, namaste on it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, all, uh, in a lot of cases, all I can do is just restrain myself until that emotions ebbs right and then the voice then the reasonable voices come back in but that emotion is as real as anything in the world and i I have a tremendous sympathy for people who who have no or who have less ability to govern those feelings because a lot of the stuff that happens on the internet you know i've spent a lot of time in the american south yes I've, i've had a lot of a lot of nice dinners with people um who i found to be the soul of graciousness and um you know and deeply human people who i'm sure would scream at me on the internet and i would feel i would feel like screaming back at them and in in all my travels you know the people with people with completely opposing views can sit down and just be human beings with each other and have a and have a very human experience and a wonderful experience. Well, it's much easier to, to be friends with people in real life than it is over the internet. Oh, or on anything. And, 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 and all the, all the divining lines that we, that we are really, really invested in right now about racism and sexism and these things, like you take them, the two most racist people in the world with differing views and put them together and, you know, and say like, Hey, you guys want to get some burgers and the, their humanity will win out. Oh yeah. Right. And so these problems that on the internet look unsolvable and, and, and institutionally in America, we have these situations where the cops are poorly trained. The cops are coming from, 
a military outlook and we're asking them to be human beings in in our cities and they are you know and they're coming at it from a from just an institutional mentality that is unsuited for that job and so we get into these situations where we are at war with ourselves but on a human level you take you take all the uniforms off of everybody and put everybody at, around a big dinner table and the humanity is is going to win out over the tribalism every time well it's like it's like you were talking about earlier um how you were describing to your daughter how you know you we used to go here to get this and we used to go here (laughs) to get that well you know if people wanted to talk about issues or debate issues they would go to the center of town and they would you know someone would get up on a little podium and start shouting and someone else would shout no you're incorrect sir and they would debate it or, or and if they weren't prepared to to share their opinion that way then they wouldn't go or they would they would keep their mouth shut and now you know the and we everybody talks about this but you know the the internet um ma- makes a you know a big loud person out of pretty much anybody and you know like there there are no consequences for you know for 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 being loud or for criticizing somebody or for saying something terrible to somebody else because you can very quickly just you know, not check your email or delete, delete your Twitter account or whatever it is that you might do if you're one of the kinds of people who, who, who likes to badger other people online. It's very easy to just, to, to just have that kind of big voice without having any consequences about it, without anyone knowing anything about you. And there have been a number of times where, you know, I've met someone in person and, you know, mentioned oh yeah you, you you were angry at me that one time you said that tweet and they're like oh yeah i'm, I, I'm so sorry I, I don't know why i said that or you know little things like that when you meet someone in person you realize that like the it's not them it's just the internet that does this to people you know i think we're all guilty of of having a bigger voice on the internet than maybe we would want to in in real life because half the things these people say online and in email and elsewhere are not things that they would say if they were sitting across from you eating a hamburger and it's not because uh, they would be too intimidated or scared uh, uh, to do that. It's simply the human decency appears when they're looking at another person who is a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and somehow, somehow we have given more voice to like, like we kid ourselves that we have, that we are evolved and we give like articulate voice to the inarticulate monster of our emotional worlds. You know, the inarticulate beast mm-hmm. that feels threatened and angry and um, or excited or lustful or whatever whatever those feelings are. And now we we have we have evolved enough that we can. We can portray that monster as an erudite mm-hmm. uh, and thoughtful and considered like creature of the mind. And we're living in a kind of between state, I feel like, where we don't, where we know, we disavow the monster in us and we do it at our peril. And we've been 
we've been marching along on this path of civilization and calling ourselves, uh, calling ourselves uh, the the enlightened animal, and always, you know, turning our back and shunning the the creature in us, mm-hmm. and even until very recently, you know, like we had institutionalized war making like they were they were riding off to war on the backs of their gallant steeds with big giant feather plumes in their hats mm-hmm. as a way of saying like war which is our which is our ugliest expression of the beast in us we're going to dress it up and choreograph it and make it seem like it's part of the march of civilization mm-hmm. and now here we are in in 2015 and i feel like we've sort of backslid a little bit there's a lot less of that pomp and circumstance that used to govern the beast mm-hmm. right now now we have casual fridays and now it's casual every days and people are we talk about this so freaking much but people are flying in airplanes in their pajamas with their flip-flops on <laughs> And a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the social mores that used to govern us and keep the beast at bay, even if it was completely false, it was at least an attempt to say, there are rules. We don't fly on airplanes in our pajamas. We don't, we don't show the beast. And that is how we, that is how we mark the progress of civilization. Yeah. And now here we are, and we are putting so much more value on personal freedom. And we're saying, well, why wouldn't I fly in flip-flops? It's more comfortable. <laughs> well, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I just can do what I want? Because why? Who are you, Obama, to tell me I can't do what I want? And we're we are we are privileging that voice in our culture. Yeah. But we're not reflecting on the fact that that voice is ultimately the voice of the beast. And, and we're imagining that, 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 you know, that like that libertarianism is some kind of lofty philosophy that personal, you know, the privileging of personal freedom over all else. And we are, we are sliding Mm -hmm. into a place where the beast is, where the, the, that angry animal in us, which maybe can only be dealt with, with you know, with the lash. Yeah. We're taking away the lash and that animal is rewarding us with a lot of like, you're not the boss of me talk. That's going to, that I think is going to have disastrous consequences. And not just because everybody on airplanes is going to be in their freak is going to be in a freaking G string. (laughs) What do you think? Picture that if you will. Good and bad. Why wouldn't I wear a G-string? It's more comfortable. (laughs) It's got the Cowboys logo on it. (laughs) (laughs) It's America's team. Oh, yeah. That's what they say. (laughs) Well, thank you, John, for filling in for Merlin this week. I wasn't really very Merlin-y. Well, I don't know if that's what people tune in for. (laughs) 